So what if I were to tell you that all of you worship something? What if I were to tell you that even since you were a kid, you've most likely been worshiping something? Because oftentimes we mistake worship with just a song, with singing, with playing an instrument, with doing that version of worship. And just as Michaela said moments ago, that is just an expression of worship. You see, I believe that we worship whatever we behold. Which means, kids, that we need to be careful in life of what we behold. You see, Austin, when I was your age, one of the things that I beheld very strongly in my mind was something called a PlayStation 2. And what iteration are we on now? <laughs> Probably like five. Okay, Abel's like quick. He's like, five! <laughs> Do you have a PlayStation, Abel? <laughs> you have the number four. So we're on five. So we've, we've graduated a few different iterations. But for me, that was probably the thing that I beheld most in life. It was all I can think of. And of course, when Christmas came around, what did I want to see under the tree? I wanted to see a PlayStation. Of course, none of you are as bad as I am, I'm sure. And when that tree came, I would go and figure out what was the weakest corner on that present. And I would unfold it to make sure that I would receive the gift that I desired. But you see, ultimately, all of us, whether in our youth as a child, thinking of a present or a toy that we want, we all worship something. Now, when we enter into adulthood, that worship can tend to change. Maybe that worship is our resources, the money that we have the people that we associate ourselves with, the image that we want to portray to others. We worship what we behold. But the question that I'm asking all of us today is what does it mean to worship God? What does it mean to worship God? I think in order to do that, we're going to turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, to flip there with me to Acts chapter 16. I'll be reading out of the NIV version today, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. You know, I want to encourage and remind all of us as believers, to familiarize yourself with God's word. I was reminded by a quote from Howard Hendricks the other day that you are either in the word and the word is conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ, or you are in the world and the world is squeezing you into its mold. So make sure that you're taking time to be in God's word. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, and for today's message, we're going to be roughly through verses 16 through 40. But just to give you a glimpse of what's going on here and what we're going to be talking about is 
Paul and Silas, and most likely Luke, is, are, are journeying together for Paul's second missionary journey. And they enter into this town in Europe called Philippi. It's in the region of Greece. And in fact, we'll put a map, hopefully, up there for you to see. So where I have that green arrow is where this takes place. Now, they're in this Macedonian region of Greece. Modern-day Greece is still there today, and you can even visit where they they have the ruins of Philippi there, if you would like. And the reason why they're heading through this area is actually pretty interesting, because a few verses before this, Paul is in in a dream. He hears somebody. He sees a man who is calling out to him, asking for him to come there. So Paul, believing that this is where God is calling the people and that the gospel needs to go into this place, decides to take Silas with him and most likely Luke, and they venture off into Macedonian Greece and into this town called Philippi. And there they meet this wonderful person named Lydia. And Lydia is from Thyatira. And what's interesting about that is because this is the same region where we would later see in the book of Revelation. So you kind of wonder if Lydia, from this meeting Paul, ended up bringing the gospel to her region. But what's most interesting about this portion of the story has to do with what happens next. So Paul, feeling a strong call to come into this Macedonian Greek region, goes there to give the gospel to the people. And as he goes into the city and starts to give the gospel to the people, he's confronted with a slave girl. Now, what happens in this confrontation, you wouldn't expect. But this slave girl continues to pester Paul and Silas. And after being pestered a number of times, finally, Paul and Silas turn to this girl and they cast a demon out of her. Now, you would think that everybody would be celebrating in this moment, right? But in fact, what ends up happening is something totally different. What ends up happening is is the slave owners of this girl decides to persecute Paul and Silas for exercising this demon. Because you see, they used this slave girl wrongly in order to turn a prophet. Because what this slave girl would do is she would tell fortunes for the people. She was someone who you would go to to hear your future being told or to hear a word from God. So because of this, when Paul and Silas cast out this demon from this girl, the slave owners become so upset because they realize that they've lost a way of income, which just goes to show you how people could be truly terrible at times, that this, this poor girl is both in bondage physically by being a slave and then in bondage spiritually by being demon-possessed and then her owners literally get upset at her own liberation. So Paul and Silas are thrown into prison And this is where I'd like to spend the bulk of the message. So if you would, I'm going to be reading now from verses 19 to 25. And it says this in scripture. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace 
to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. They ad- they, by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, this is an important verse what comes next. So please pay close attention to verse 25. Look at Paul's response in this situation. It says this, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns out of the new purple Mennonite hymnal. No, it just says that they were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I don't know about you, but I would consider this an odd response. If you just traveled into a town because you believe that God gave you a dream to help give the gospel to these people, then you get there and a mob is formed against you after you help liberate a child who's enslaved Then from that, you are beaten, stripped naked, then beaten with rods, thrown into jail, and then within the jail, shackled. I'd call that a pretty bad day, right? Maybe a pretty bad week. And I think it would be natural for any one of us to be in a negative situation like that and to think to themselves, God, why are you doing this? All I'm trying to do is follow exactly what you have for me. All I'm trying to do is just live out my faith for you. Why would you allow this to happen? Why would you allow me to be imprisoned when you are calling me to go forth? It makes very little sense. But you see, I think this is where the enemy likes to keep us. You see, I believe the enemy wants to keep us in that kind of framework. Where when we are experiencing trouble, where instead of praying and singing and going to God in the midst of our trouble, we go to God to do what? To complain to blame him for our circumstances, to get mad at God for what we are going through. And I think the enemy ends up winning in that way because ultimately what the enemy wants to be able to do in our lives is he wants to prevent us from worshiping God. The enemy wants to stop you from worshiping God. Make no mistake that it is one of his ploys to try to distract you. I'm sure you have experienced that even on a Sunday morning, right? You get up, ready to go to church, and then something happens. 
Your car won't start. You get somebody that sends a nasty text message to you. Something comes up. That football game is programmed. Whatever it might be. Have you ever thought that the enemy just wants to prevent you from pursuing God and worshiping him? Chuck Swindoll thinking about worship, thinking about what it means to be used by God, says this, to be used of God, is there anything more encouraging, more fulfilling? Perhaps not, but there is something more basic, to meet with God, to linger in his presence, to shut out the noise of the city, and in quietness give him the praise he deserves. Before we engage ourselves in his work, let's meet him in his word, in prayer, in worship. You see, the Hebrews believed that what worship was, was to bow down prostrate, to prostrate oneself before God. You see, it was a posture of submission, and it's something that we even see expressed within this world. I mean, if any of you has a pet, specifically a dog, you understand that when you try to correct and discipline that dog, what does the dog typically do? It typically will go down on all fours and then eventually put that belly up and then with that smile try to look at you. And in some ways, what is it doing? It's, it's, it's allowing itself to be prostrate in submission to you. Well, the Jewish people believed that worship was a similar posture. That as people, we needed to not just physically, but spiritually allow ourselves to lay down prostrate before the Lord. And what does that mean? That means to submit ourselves to him. It's why in Psalms 95, 6, when the psalmist there is encouraging the people to come, let us do what? Bow down in worship. Let us kneel before our maker. You see, worship is a posture. It's the posture that we take on in life. And if you want to ask yourself, if you are worshiping God, then the simplest question that you can ask yourself is, is what is your posture towards him? Do you truly submit to God? Do you truly look to God and behold of who he is and say, Lord, here is my life? It's why, make no mistake, later on in his life, Paul would write a letter to the church in Rome and say these words that were read during our scripture reading time. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says that I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And what does Paul say this is? So when you offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, what does Paul call this? True and proper worship. So notice there that Paul doesn't say, when you sing a great song, when you open up that purple hymnal and start reading it, then you are worshiping God. 
No, he says that when you offer your bodies in view of who God is, and you offer your bodies as a sacrifice to the Lord, then you are engaging in what? True and proper worship. And then he continues in verse 2 to say this, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Church, I'm oftentimes asked as a pastor, how do I know what God's will is? And I think that is a beautiful question to ask. And I think all of us in our lives have faced a moment where we've asked ourselves that same question. How do I know what God wants me to do in life? Well, I think the answer of it is laid out perfectly for us in Scripture. That it, it, Paul promises here, Paul shows us that it is almost it is a biblical promise for us to be able to test and approve what God's will is. And the only way that you can test and approve what God's will is, is to do what? To be in a posture of worship towards God. Now, my wife doesn't normally get to sit in on the services because she's usually taking care of the littles. But one thing I know in our marriage relationship is that the longer that I take time to get to know Michaela, to know the kind of person she is, the more I understand, or at least I should understand, what she needs of me or what she expects of me. So I know, for instance, if I try to do a certain thing, that Michaela's going to be not so happy about that. Or maybe if I do something else, Michaela's going to be happy about that. So simple rule, if I bring home something that's furry and fluffy, she's happy about that. (laughs) She just is always... In fact, I used to joke around with her when we were still dating, and I told her once while we, were, while we were in the car, I know how to change your mood with a single word, and I can do it regardless of whatever circumstance you are in. She's like, come on. And I said, okay, I'll prove it to you. I'll just say the word, horses. And immediately she started getting smiley, and she realized that I had that right. The point I'm trying to make here is, is that I'm in a love relationship with my wife. And through that relationship, I come to understand her better and what she expects and desires out of me. Well, the same thing is true for us with God. The more that you are in his word, the more that you are committed to prayer, the more that you just offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, the more you can discern his will for you. So for instance, if someone tells me to do something, like, hey, check out that beautiful girl over there, wouldn't you? I'll let you fill in the blanks. I could instantly shut that down and say, well, you know what? Jesus tells me in the Sermon on the Mount that if even if I look at a woman with lust in my heart, that I've done what? I've committed adultery. So I'm going to refrain from that. Or if somebody tells me something in a way that causes me to try to be a judgmental person, I can think again to the words of Jesus and say, Jesus teaches me that I can't even try to pick out a speck of dirt in somebody else's eye until I do what? Until I deal, remove with the plank in my own eye, right? Or the log in my own eye. So 
through my love relationship with the Father, through being able to commit myself to him, what ends up happening for me? I end up being able to understand God's will better for myself. You know, I was reminded of that this past uh, couple of weeks. Um, as, as you know, um, I've been trying to uh, visit some of our congregants in uh, nursing homes, and on a particular week, I was visiting Tynes. And Gene, I looked for you that day, but I couldn't find you. <laughs> but I visited Tynes, and it was a great time because while I was there, you know, typically when I visit her, she just brings me up into her room, and we just kind of have a chat while we're at, uh, up at her room. But this time, she rolled herself all the way down to the first floor, and she was waiting for me. And the reason why I was visiting her was to drop off 40 pounds of peaches that she had ordered. Now, if you don't know who Tynes is, she's about 97, 98 years old, or maybe I should say years young, and she's just a sprightly lady, a beautiful lady. And she had me in Tynes, I know you listen to the services, so hopefully this encourages you, and she had brought me around the whole entire facility and Finally, she brought me to the holies of holies of the nursing facility. And this facility was a room with the outside words written on it, activity room. And it's where bingo happens and all this other wonderful stuff that these people totally live for. Well, it just so happened that she brought me into that room and there were several staff members there. And there was this one staff member in particular who took interest in the fact that I was a pastor. And all the other staff members started to joke to this particular staff member and saying that, Oh, this man, he's, he, he's going to be a preacher one day, um, jabbing at his, their staff member in kind, though. So we were talking, and as we were talking, I decided to prod about that question. So I asked him, I said, so do you believe that God has put a call on your life to enter into ministry? And I could tell that just by asking that question, I was touching something that he was wrestling with. And he immediately told me in that moment, well, you know, I'd like to think that, but I know that as a teacher, you need to be able to have your stuff together. And for one, I was just so happy to hear that he understood that if you were going to be a pastor or a teacher of God's word, that you need to take the way that you live seriously. And then he said, and I'm just dealing with this habitual sin that I just haven't been able to overcome, and I don't know what to do. So, and then he turned it back to me and asked me, well, what do I do? And I so appreciated his honesty, one, that he would even consider some of these things, and two, that he would ask a pastor what to do. So we began to talk, and I was talking to this gentleman, and him and I were talking about the importance of understanding that Our Christian life is a life that is often lived by failing forward. And what I mean by that is is that we will and likely are going to make mistakes, but that we continue to strive forward onto the goals that God has given us, that we continue to try to aim to be the person of Christ that he has called us to be, that we look at Jesus as the ultimate model of perfection and strive to be that way regardless of the failures that we've experienced. But and then he shared with me that oftentimes he feels 
so guilty when he sins. So, and then I started talking to him a little bit more, and I said, well, then you need to understand the difference between the Holy Spirit's voice and the enemy's voice. He said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, when we sin, it's good that the Holy Spirit convicts us. We should feel a sense of shame, a sense of pain, a sense of sorrow over the sins of our life when we do bad things. Because that's God's kindness to us. That's his way of saying, I have more for you, Eli. I have more for you, Lena. I have more for you, Ruth. I'm not calling you to live this way. But you see, we oftentimes mistake the enemy's voice in God's voice. Where the Holy Spirit tries to encourage us and say, I have more for you than that. I'm not calling you to that. The enemy's voice likes to say, you're no good. This is how it will always be. You're never going to be better than this. Why even try? God wasted his grace on you. And you know what? He took it a long time ago. And as I was saying those words, I heard a gasp in the room and someone went, "Ah, that's how my husband talks to me. (laughs) And I felt so much sorrow in that moment knowing that somebody else in the room was overhearing us and attributing the same voice that the enemy often uses for their spouse. But then I shared with both of them And it ties into the message today that oftentimes where we go wrong is instead of focusing on our Lord, we just focus on our problem. You see, Paul and Silas could have very easily focused on their problem. They could have focused on the fact that they were wrongly beaten that they were wrongly imprisoned, that they were wrongly shackled down, and that they were being wrongly treated. But instead, what do they choose to do in verse 25? What they choose to do is they choose to pray and sing to God. See, church, the point that I want to make today is that worship brings eternity into our lives, and into everything we do. Worship is how we overcome. When we worship God, we can overcome. And through worship, we're bringing God, we're bringing eternity into our lives and into everything that we do. It says that after Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns in verse 25, that it says that suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at all at once, the prison doors flung open, they flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because the other prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. See, here's the ironic thing. 
is that everybody in the story, in reality, had it in reverse. As shown by the slave girl, the people on the outside of the prison were the real people in bondage. They were the real ones who were in their own form of a prison. And ironically, the one that was in the greatest physical bondage, Paul and Silas, I would say were the most free. Worship, by worshiping God, it brings a freedom to the soul. It changes us from the inside out and it causes us to allow eternity to be into our lives. The question that I have for each of you, though, is what do you worship? When we think about the life cycle, and if you don't mind putting it on, on, on uh, the screen, when we think about this um, discipleship wheel here, this process, these values of our church, we put worship at the top because we believe that even though we can do all of these things in different stages of our lives, that ultimately it must begin with worship. Church, we need to take the way we worship seriously. We need to take it so seriously that we need to make sure that we are adding in rhythms, programming rhythms, creating good habits of our lives where we allow worship to be a part of it. Sunday is a portion of that. Sunday is an opportunity for you to come to service and worship the God in, God in community with each other. And I want to encourage you that you make a good habit of that. That you make a good habit of coming to church on Sundays and worshiping together, but that it won't stop there. Because ultimately, worship is a daily rhythm of our lives. It's a daily opportunity of being able to bow down before our God and submit to him. I want to encourage you once more that we are called to worship our God and that through doing that, we can bring so much freedom into our lives. And we can understand the will that God has for us. Amen? Let's pray.